If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. George V has gone down in the history books as something of a dullard, a man about whom there is little to say. But according to a new biography by Jane Ridley, both George and his reign contain much more to be fascinated by. On the throne from 1910 to 1936, George witnessed an immensely tumultuous era and helped keep Britain's monarchy afloat as others across Europe crumbled. I spoke to Jane to find out more. Before you tell us what you've uncovered about George V in this new biography that you've written, can you give us an idea of what George's reputation has traditionally been like? How has he gone down in history? Um, Well, George V uh, reigned from uh, 1910 to 1936. And he has been seen really as a sort of a king who just filled uh, a gap between two rather better-known kings. So his father was Edward VII, uh, who was a a charismatic, rather scandalous, fashionable playboy king, a sort of, you know, a big man. Um, And then um, George V was ultimately, uh, after the crisis of the abdication, when his eldest son abdicated from the throne, um, he was succeeded by George VI. And he is well-known too. You know, he was the king of the Queen's Speech, with the terrible stutter. Uh, And he was the king who took Britain through the Second World War and set up a very important relationship with Churchill and all of that. So um, between these two um, uh, well-known kings, George V has rather sort of languished. Um, Little has been written about him. Little has been said about him. Um, As you say, I think he's quite often painted as a fairly flat figure. He's He's almost a cardboard cutout king, isn't he? But how should we see him? Well, George V has been seen, as, as you say, as a cardboard cutout and as a, a, a sort of a, a rather dull king. Um, and um, critics have said at the time and later have said, you know, that his court was very dull, uh, that um, he himself uh, was a, a rather dull man without any of the sort of uh, cultivation of, uh, you know, the, the arts and things that a king should have. When I started work, that was the um, idea that I had. And people would say to me, you know, how how are you going to deal with the dullness? Uh, but um, as I went on, I realised that um, actually he was not at all dull. Um, certainly the period in which he was reigning, um, you know, never a dull moment, as Tommy Lassell said, and is the subtitle of my book. It was an incredibly tumultuous, difficult period in British history. Um, and w- what's extraordinary about George V is that This man who was essentially a Victorian, I mean, his grandmother, Mm. Queen Victoria, died when he was only, was he 35, um, that he was able to steer uh, Britain through and the monarchy through all these problems um, and actually end up 
uh, with um, more political stability and a stronger monarchy than it had been at the beginning. So he was he had a very short touch with politics. We'll definitely return to some of those um, tumultuous events of his reign later, as you say, because this was a really, really pivotal moment in the history of monarchies across Europe. But just to return to George himself briefly, um, if he wasn't dull then, what can we say about him as a person, his personality, his character? Well, George's character is, um, it's, it's, it's well hidden. Um, but um, basically, I think, um, George V, in some ways, he was a typical British country squire. He enjoyed country sports, uh, particularly shooting game shooting, bird shooting, pheasant shooting, grouse, all that sort of thing. Um, He was an excellent shot. He was extremely accurate. He was one of the top five or six shots of his generation in Britain at a time when uh, standards were very high indeed. He was a countryman. He was always much happier um, at Sandringham in the country or at Balmoral than he was at at, at Buckingham Palace. Um, uh, He was also, in his private views, very Tory, uh, you know, on the right of politics. But um, he developed the knack. He understood the crucial thing for a modern monarch, which is, uh, you know, okay, have your private views, but the job is about being above party politics. And that was, I think, very important. That raises something really interesting, I think, which is the fact that he is, quote, dull, whether he is or not, has been levelled against him as a criticism. But really... Did you want monarchs at this time that were flamboyant, that were out there? Or did you want somebody who was um, reliable, sensible, dependable? I think that's a very good point. Um, in fact, um, I think part of his his strength, indeed, uh, was his dullness, if you like, if, well, ordinariness, whatever we call it. Uh, the fact that he was sensible, that he was predictable. Um, if, if we'd had, um, you know, a flamboyant court, uh, a, a, um, a playboy king, um, mistresses, um, sexual scandals, etc. during the First World War. I think it would have been um, uh, seriously difficult. He once said um, to Ramsay MacDonald, his, one of his prime ministers, um, you have found me an ordinary man. And he understood that being an ordinary man was, as you're suggesting, a strength. It, it put him in touch uh, with um, so many of his people. One thing that you do say about him was that, in your words, he was woefully badly educated. Did that have a negative impact on his ability to take on his role as monarch? Uh, Well, George's education was extraordinarily um, poor. Um, He was sent off from a very early age uh, on on, uh, various sort of training uh, ships uh, to become a naval officer uh, with his older brother, uh, who actually died when he was 28. His older brother, Eddie, didn't want to go into the Navy at all. And these two princes um, were sort of educated in this sort of bizarre way, sailing around the world um, with one tutor. And really, um, George actually learned a lot about being a naval officer. He was good at that. He came top in all the exams and and he did very well. Um, But he didn't have any education in languages um, or culture or uh, history or any of that sort of background. Um, I used to think that that was a huge disadvantage, being uneducated uh, for a job, which is, after all, incredibly sort of demanding. But in fact, um, looking at George's career, I think the point about him was that he was actually intelligent, um, that he learned, he did, he knew how to learn from experience. Um, and um, I think that it was that, more than anything, that enabled him to be a good king. I don't think he was too handicapped 
um, by being undereducated. And actually, he was a great mm. reader throughout his life. He read a book a week. Something you emphasise throughout the book is the importance of George's wife, Queen Mary. And you say as well that you almost wrote this as a joint biography. So why is she such a fascinating figure to you? Oh, Queen Mary, I mean, in her own right, is a fascinating figure uh, because of all her sort of um, interests. I mean, we say that George wasn't interested in, in art and, and, and um, antiques, but Queen Mary was absolutely obsessed by these topics. Um, and so she was played a really crucial part in the founding and curating of the royal collection. Um, and, um, you know, she herself was an incredibly enthusiastic curator and all over the royal palaces, there are bits of furniture with labels on in Queen Mary's handwriting, identifying uh, important pieces of furniture. But above all, uh, Queen Mary had huge interest in um, in jewellery and um, in accumulating more and more jewellery for the crown jewels. So she performed a part of the role of monarch that um, George didn't. But I think more important than that, more central than that to the success of George's reign was the fact that this was a really strong marriage. And um, I think if you look at successful monarchs in Britain in, in the 20th century, um, it is the ones with the strong um, marriage, with a strong sort of consort uh, who come out the best. I mean, obviously, we saw an awful, heard an awful lot about this when Prince Philip died, about his the role that he played as consort to the Queen, as sort of the, the power behind the throne. We didn't know what was going on, but it was crucially important. Um, and I think the same is true of Queen Mary and George V. Uh, but this marriage between George V and Queen Mary uh, was it was a partnership. Um, and although she didn't sort of appear publicly in political functions, um, uh, she he discussed everything with her. He always told her everything first, and 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 that was really important to to to, to not just to their relationship but to the monarchy. Mm. And as part of that partnership, you say that George was an intensely domestic man. Was that the primary way that his public image was um, taken to the people? Was that the main um, image of kingship that he wanted to represent? I think, uh, particularly after the First World War, um, he wanted to represent the image of a family on the throne. Um, so, and, and that with at the centre of that family, this very, you know, the, the marriage, uh, but also his his six children. Um, the uh, idea um, of um, a domestic family monarchy, that was really important. Um, and of course, that idea was the basic idea of the 20th century monarchy in Britain. You also talk about something you refer to as the mystique of George's monarchy. What do you mean by that? Well, I think that there's always with monarchy, a sense that, you know, we see the public, the public sees what whatever they see. Uh, but um, uh, that if you let daylight in, um, you will see much more. Um, and that there was a sort of magic about monarchy. And this was felt even, um, you know, at, at, at the time that um, George was king at the beginning of the 20th century, that um, uh, it's not just a matter of being a sort of humdrum family on the throne. Uh, it's also um, the fact that because um, he's king. Um, there is a sort of uh, a, a, a magical ability to communicate with his people. Um, and I suppose one sort of thing that um, exemplifies this is the Christmas broadcast uh, that begin right at the end of the reign in the 1930s. Um, direct communication uh, between um, this sort of grandfather figure, the grandfather of his people, um, and his people who are turning on their wirelesses um, on Christmas um, afternoon to listen to the king's speech. So he was generally quite a popular king. 
uh, for most of his reign, he was quite a popular king, certainly. Um, there was a slightly um, bumpy bit um, at the end of the First World War. You know, it was a period of, of, of unrest, a period of lots of soldiers coming back, demobilised, not finding any jobs, a period of unemployment, strikes, etc. George was very much alarmed by reports of the growth of socialism and what he called Bolshevism, um, the influence from Russia spreading to Britain. Um, and he did respond um, to that by trying to um, make the monarchy more in touch with the people by himself doing things like going to football matches and being seen at football matches, that sort of thing. Um, before we move on to the First World War um, and the impact of that, I just wanted to return to the start of George's reign because I found it quite intriguing that he didn't become king until he was 44, which was quite late. Do you think the fact that he had such a long span of adulthood before he made it to the throne helped him when he did, when he did ascend? Well, um, it should have helped him because he had a lot of time to um, prepare for being king. Um, uh, you know, 44, uh, he, he'd had about sort of 20 years to prepare for being king. Uh, and it is true that he did... At the at, at, when, when, uh, you know at the beginning of that period, he did um, he did engage a tutor, uh, and they read together. You know the famous book by Walter Badgett, the English Constitution, which is the famous classic statement uh, of the constitutional role of the monarch. Um, so he did do a little bit of trying to educate himself, but really not very much. Um, he quite soon he got fed up with Badgett. He wasn't getting anything from it that was going to be helpful to him, he thought. And I understand that, actually. It's interesting, his period as Prince of Wales, uh, there was very little pressure put on him by his um, father to, to sort of step up to the plate and do a lot of public work. He, 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 I think there was a feeling that, um, you know, because his brother had died in such terrible circumstances and very sudden death from pneumonia, um, and George um, himself, um, hadn't really expected to become king. There was a feeling that he needed to be treated with great sort of gentleness and not pressured and not pushed. Um, so George really continued his life uh, to a large extent when he was Prince of Wales, um, as, as, he, as, as he had done before, being a sort of country squire and spending a lot of time in the country um, uh, uh, shooting and, and on other such occupations. Um, and um, he didn't do a great deal of sort of public work. Um, and so when he does become king, he's learning on the job uh, and he learns very quickly. So let's return to the First World War now. Um, during that conflict, many of the nations that Britain was fighting against had monarchs that had close blood ties with George. They were his first cousins. So I'm talking about um, Tsar Nicholas and I'm talking about Kaiser Wilhelm in Germany. Was that a strain on him or were those family ties really only ones of blood that didn't extend to a personal relationship? Oh, I think the First World War was incredibly stressful from that point of view for, for, for George. I mean, you know, Britain's enemy uh, was um, Germany. Uh, and, of course, uh, the Kaiser was George's first cousin, George's rather difficult first cousin. Uh, and so um, uh, George, actually, I don't think he found much difficulty uh, in um, seeing um, the Kaiser as his enemy. He'd never much liked the Kaiser. Uh, and um, I think far more difficult and conflicted uh, was the um, relationship with his other emperor, first cousin, um, Nicholas II of Russia. Um, because George had had a very affectionate relationship with Nicky, as he called him. He always says in his diary when he meets him, dear Nicky, you know, was charming as ever. They got on very well at a personal level. Um, and also they looked identical. Uh, and when they were together, um, uh, people really couldn't tell the difference, which was which. One of the really sort of... Um, 
crucial interludes in George's reign is what to do uh, when the Russian Revolution comes along um, and um, Nikki is forced to abdicate. And um, the um, Russian government, the provisional Russian government, the liberal government of Russia, who wanted to stay in the war, um, approached the British government and asked Lloyd George, um, is it possible um, for the British to give the Tsar um, asylum? And Lloyd George, who's desperate for Russia to stay in the war, um, says, you know, of course we'll do this, we'll do our best. Uh, but um, it becomes increasingly clear um, that the king is not in favour of this. And certainly Lord Stamfordham, the king's private secretary, is very busy um, trying to sort of undo this offer of asylum. And um, I think there's little doubt that George knew all about this and was um, even behind it. I mean, Stamfordham couldn't have um, refused asylum to the king's first cousin without the king being on side with that that, that Which is interesting because you just said that they had this uh, personal affection. Um, they were obviously first cousins. So why did George take that stance that was opposed even to the British political establishment? Um, it's really interesting. Uh, George believed, rightly or wrongly, that if the Tsar came to this country, uh, that it would um, undermine the position of his own monarchy. He believed that it would cause Bolshevism to spread, that it would be certainly um, something that, you know, the Labour Party would find very hard to accept. And um, it was basically a decision that he made for dynastic reasons to preserve his own throne. And possibly he was right. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. And so there's a huge difference between, you know, the, um, uh, the heir to the throne who is photographed, you know, in a swimming pool or whatever it might be, living this film star life, uh, and the king um, just sort of doing his duty and never going abroad and endlessly doing this, this sort of these uh, good works. Because we can tell with hindsight, can't we, that the Romanovs obviously were were later executed. But did George know that he was essentially signing a death warrant for his cousin when he made that decision? Um, that is a good question. Uh, uh, when he made that decision, uh, Russia still has the liberal provisional government. Um, he did not realise, in fact, that there was no way uh, that the Tsar could escape. Uh, because the Petrograd Soviets were and, and their sort of armies was, were, were guarding um, the Tsar in his palace. Um, there were thousands of troops. Um, it was absolutely would have been impossible for the Tsar and his um, entourage to escape. And in fact, you know, Nicholas II seems completely out of touch with reality. He sort of replies, "Yes, it's very kind of you to lend to, to offer me asylum, but I really can't come until the children have recovered from measles." Um, and there's a a school of thought that Nicholas II anyway believed that his destiny as a as a Romanov was to die in his country. So I think it's unlikely that whatever George had decide, decided, it's unlikely that the Tsar would have come anyway. And nobody really knew how, how bloody the uh, Russian Revolution would become. But if you look at revolutions in the past, such as the French Revolution or even the English Revolution, Charles I lost his head and so too did, did the King of France. Uh, so um, I think that um, it was pretty likely that this would happen to anybody who knew any history. As, as the story you just told makes clear, this was an era when many of Europe's monarchies crumbled. How much do you think that George and Anqui Mary can be credited with the survival of the British monarchy? 
I think the British monarchy was in a stronger position than many of the other European countries that crum- monarchies that crumbled. But I think that George and Queen Mary did a lot to um, preserve it as well. I mean, you know, the the, the key factor perhaps uh, was that the British monarchy was a constitutional monarchy, and therefore, when the First World War broke out, there was no expectation that the king would have anything to do with the um, direction of the war, or that he should head his troops as the Tsar did, or anything like that. So. Um, his role uh, during um, the um, First World War was to basically keep up morale, and especially the morale of soldiers. Um, I think that um, obviously one factor that hugely helped the um, survival of the monarchy was the fact that we actually won the war. Um, if Britain had been defeated, it might all have been a very different story. It was military defeat that brought down the Tsar and um, brought down the Kaiser. But their positions were both weaker politically in their countries than um, the position of the um, King of England. Um, and um, I think what um, you know, what George and, and 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 Mary do during the war is essentially uh, to give an example uh, of um, uh, you know. Um, uh, living, you know, only eating meat twice a week or whatever it might be, um, giving up alcohol for the duration of the war. And more than that, perhaps, um, the sort of service, you know, endless visits. If you look at George's diary uh, for the war years, it's it's almost impossible to make a sort of pattern of what's going on because every day is just full, clogged uh, with these visits uh, to um, hospitals or visits to see soldiers off who are going off to France um, or people um, coming to be decorated with, with um, you know, with, with, with medals. Um, he, was, he was incredibly busy. Um, and that sort of dedication, I think, um, was something that um, uh, also played very much in his favour. And the First World War wasn't the only challenge of George's reign. To return to that Tommy Lassell's quote, um, there was never a dull moment. So what were some of the other moments of crisis or challenge that the monarchy faced in that time? Uh, Well, I think one of the the, um, most important moments of challenge that the monarchy faced was the rise of the Labour Party uh, and the first Labour government of 1924. This came about as a result of a hung parliament. And so there was a decision to be made uh, by the king at that time, um, uh, which leader to appoint as prime minister. And George, George had no doubt um, that it was Ramsay MacDonald, the leader of the Labour Party, who should become prime minister. Uh, and so this is really extraordinary. And George himself realised how extraordinary it was uh, that um, uh, he, the King of England, should be appointing or enabling, facilitating uh, the first Labour government. And he, he, you know, he went out of his way to make things easier for him than for, for them than for other parties. Um, he was as his, a, a martinet when it came to wearing the correct clothes at court and wherever. Um, and um, you know, he would write cross notes to people who wore the wrong hat with the wrong waistcoat or whatever it might be. Uh, but when it came to the Labour Party, they were allowed to wear basically whatever they liked. Um, uh, so because George was aware that these court clothes were extremely expensive um, and that many Labour MPs couldn't or, or cabinet ministers couldn't afford them. Uh, so and he has this very friendly relationship uh, with Ramsay MacDonald, the Labour leader. Um, and, and in fact, he gets on better with, the, with Ramsay MacDonald, I would say, than any other um, prime minister. And so um, uh, on the day that Ramsay MacDonald um, became prime minister, um, George um, wrote in his diary, you know, Ramsay MacDonald, prime minister, I wonder what grandmother, uh, that's to say, um, grandmama, that's to say Queen Victoria, would have made of that. 
<laughs> it's intriguing, isn't it? Because as you mentioned earlier that he was personally very um, Tory. So this seems contradictory, but is it just an example of his ability to separate personal and um, political, I guess, his state work, his personal life and his state work? Um, it is indeed an example of his um, ability to separate his personal life and his and his personal views and his public role. Um, certainly it is. And I think... Uh, I think, you know, from the point of view of the public role, encouraging the Labour Party to, to, to form a government was incredibly important. Remember, this is a time of fascism and Nazism, etc. Um, and if you can contain the political left within the constitution, um, rather than sort of, um, you know, forcing them to work outside it and become more extreme. You mentioned that his uh, relationship with Ramsay MacDonald was perhaps the best of the four prime ministers that were during his reign. Can you give us an idea of the other three and how he got on with them? Well, two prime ministers who he didn't get on with very well uh, were um, Asquith, uh, who was prime minister when he became king. Uh, and Asquith treated George very badly and misled him um, over a very important thing about the constitutional um, uh, crisis. And from that point onwards, uh, George decides uh, that um, it's really important that he should sort of keep clear of party politics. I mean, it was educational for George. But the prime minister who he really doesn't like um, is um, Lloyd George. And Lloyd George, who, of course, comes to power um, with a, 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 you know, a, a, a brief, basically, to, um, to, to win the war and to, to be much more proactive in running the war. Um, uh, Lloyd George is constantly um, receiving letters uh, from the palace um, saying, um, you know, um, uh, you really should ask me before you create people peers. Um, uh, you, you really should answer my letters. Lloyd George is in, treats the king really badly. Um, he doesn't answer letters. At one point, um, he even actually failed to turn up for an appointment with the king, which was something, and still would be today, completely unheard of. Um, his sort of, um, you know, the basic courtesy uh, that Lloyd, Lloyd George um, should have extended to the king just is, is, is not there. Um, and um, Lloyd George was well aware of this. Lloyd George was Britain's first working class prime minister. Uh, he certainly sympathised um, with, um, you know, Republican um, politics. Um, and certainly at the beginning um, of his um, uh, time as prime minister, um, he's, 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 he has no time for the king at all. Um, after they've been working together for quite a bit, they do actually sort of you know, relations do improve. But the, by far the most difficult uh, prime minister for um, George is Lloyd George. And the one he also, I think it's rather interesting that um, Baldwin, Tory prime minister and Tory sort of leader for much of this period, is somebody who the, the king finds quite difficult to get him on with. He gets on much better with Ramsay MacDonald. So the world looked very different in 1936 than it had in 1910. And George was still there. What do you think was the secret to his success, almost, his ability to weather all these storms. What do you think was behind that? Um, I think that politically the secret of his success was his his his, his realisation um, that it was no good um, for the monarch to try, try and impose his own political views, um, that his job was different. His job was to be above party and to try and... Um, you know, create agreement where possible. Um, and also um, his job, for example, over Ireland, where there was a threat of 
of civil war um, in 1914. His job in that sort of circumstance was essentially to prevent his subjects from killing, from killing one another. It wasn't about party politics. It transcended. It was higher than party politics in his view. So I think that was one thing. And I think the second thing that was really important to, um, uh, uh, to, to George's success uh, was his projection of this image of um, a family monarchy uh, and, you know, which was in touch with the families of his country, a sort of a rather um, a modest um, and rather humdrum monarchy, um, mm. which understood how ordinary people felt. After all these years of a stable monarchy, when George died, um, the monarchy faced one of the biggest crises in its modern history, um, the abdication crisis. Uh did did George know that he was going to leave a chaotic scene when he when he died? How aware was he of what was going to happen? Uh, George was pretty aware of. I don't think I can't. George was probably not aware of the actual abdication, but he was aware that there were problems with the succession. So um, George had had a long-standing quarrel with his eldest son and heir, um, the Duke of Windsor. While George was sort of on his deathbed, practically. Um, he was distraught to discover that um, the Duke of Windsor was having an affair uh, with M Mrs. Simpson, Wallace Simpson, this American twice-divorced woman, totally unacceptable in George's view. He had hoped that he would be able to have a conversation with his son and persuade him to withdraw from the succession. Um, so in a sense, there's a sort of paradox here that, you know, George, who was so keen on projecting the um, image of a family monarchy, actually, when it came to it, the crucial um, thing that a king needs to do, which was to ensure the succession, um, was something that he failed to do. Um, that, you know, it was still very unclear indeed what would happen when he died. And of course, what does happen uh, is that um, his son, um, the Duke of Windsor, takes the throne, and then um, very shortly after that, abdicates. And in a sense, you could say that all of this is, is down to George, that he hadn't, or to an extent down to George, that he hadn't really prepared for the succession. But I think on the other hand, you have to say that the fact that the abdication was really not a big deal, uh, you know, it was quite easily um, uh, uh, put right, and that George VI stood up to the plate um, and became a very good monarch, um, and that the monarchy itself was was strong. All that um, was George's achievement. Mm. And you say in the book that the rift with his son, his elder son, the, the Duke of Windsor, must count as one of George's greatest failures. Was that rift just about um, his son's relationship with Wallace Simpson, or was it more longstanding? The rift with um, his son, the Duke of Windsor, goes back really to the First World War. Um, we, even as a little boy, you know, the Duke of Windsor hadn't got on with his father very well. Uh, but basically, I suppose the way to, best way to see it is as being a sort of expression of the generation gap that opens up um, between the older generation who'd sort of got Britain into this war uh, and the younger generation who become, you know, sort of um, the roaring 20s and throw away all the sort of uh, Victorianism of their um, parents. Uh, and uh, the Duke of Windsor was an extremely trendy figure. Um, and he did these incredibly successful empire tours, that, exhausting um, empire tours that he was sent on uh, by his father and by the, Lloyd George, the prime minister. And, you know, he was a kind of film star figure. Um, and so there's a huge difference between, you know, 
the um, uh, the heir to the throne who is photographed, you know, in a swimming pool or whatever it might be, living this film star life, uh, and the king um, just sort of doing his duty and never going abroad and endlessly doing this, this sort of these uh, good works. Um, and I suppose there's a bit of jealousy. I think that George was jealous of his son's popularity. But there is also the fact that um, from a quite early age, uh, the Duke of Windsor didn't really want to be king. He knew he'd been a very good Prince of Wales and he was quite happy to, to, to leave it at that. So finally, um, how should we amend our view of George if we don't want to just dismiss him um, as a dullard that came between two more interesting people? How should we see him instead? Uh, well, I think we should see him as the founder of the modern monarchy and also uh, the king who saved the monarchy from the potential danger of the First World War and its political impact. That was Jane Ridley. Her biography, George V, Never a Dull Moment, is out now, published by Chateau and Windus. You can find plenty more on the history of the royal family at historyextra.com. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. 